What is crackalackin', Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you for a mailbag, which we have not done in a while. I think it would be a two-part mailbag because I have so many questions. Um, and we'll do a Discord only one, I think, in part two. So for part one, we'll get to all the Twitter questions that I got from the solicitation tweet and also in my DMs, which were backed up. So I apologize if I took too long to get anybody. If I don't answer your question because you DM me forever ago, feel free to hit me back at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E on Twitter. Before we dive headfirst into this, just a quick and friendly reminder, if not a, a portion of this podcast in which I beg you to continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Hardwood Knox wherever you get your podcasts. If this is your first time listening to us, please consider throwing us that permanent subscription. If you've already subscribed and you're downloading every episode and you have rated us, consider throwing out a word of mouth recommendation or help us retweet our promotions on Twitter. Tell friends, family members, acquaintances, coworkers, random people on social media who you still know like basketball for some reason that they should check out this podcast it means a lot if you can help us continue to promote and build this great community that we have here as part of that make sure you're following us on the socials as well at hardwood knocks on twitter at hardwood knocks on tiktok at hardwood underscore knocks on instagram youtube.com hardwood knocks please subscribe to our channel there and finally join our discord the link is in the podcast description along with the links to our youtube channel and all our social media handles with all that out of the way let's get to some quick news notes some not so quick news notes maybe before we cannonball into this mailbag we'll begin here this one's really quick the timberwolves are hiring jazz assistant coach and former pelicans gm del Demps as part of new president tim Connolly's front office that's Persham Sharania and uh, John Krasinski of The Athletic. Uh, it's going to me to be fascinating to see how Connolly continues slushing out his staff in Minnesota. Krasinski noted in The Athletic that because the Timberwolves have operated with more of a bare bones crew in over the years, that Connolly's sort of tasked with beefing up their front office staff, fleshing them out. I still remain very interested to see what happens with Satya Gupta, who took over the basically the head of basketball operations once Gerson Rosas was was dismissed. Um, and now we've seen hires. I don't know if they're ahead of him, but we've seen just a lot of hires from Conley. So I'm very curious to see what happens there. Uh, but yeah, the Timberwolves, I, I think they're gearing up for what should be one of the more fascinating off seasons, even though I say that about pretty much every single team. Uh, the other, this this little tidbit, which I thought was, it's not really news, but it's it still matters, is David Griffin was speaking on uh, the Ryan Rosillo podcast, and he called offering, the idea of offering Zion Williamson a max extension, or the idea of Zion Williamson as a max player, rather, as in a pretty easy decision. The direct quote was, it's not a big decision, it's a pretty easy decision. The kid's historically good when he plays. This is a max player. What becomes significant as a team that's a small market team and as a team that you can't make mistakes in terms of injuries over time, you have to indemnify yourself in some way for that, that being Zion's injury risk, and that's fine. But the decision of whether or not this is a max player is an easy one. Zion can sign a max deal five years worth more than $180 million. He has mentioned that he couldn't sign a deal like that fast enough. Anyone who's kind of perpetuated the talk that he will leave new Orleans anytime soon. That's long felt, uh, maybe not fabricated, but so, so much it's felt pointless just because 
given his injury history, I don't know that he, if you're Zion, you would want to risk signing your qualifying offer like a lot of people thought he might in trying to get to unrestricted free agency. You should guarantee yourself as much long-term money as possible. What is going to be interesting is how much of his contract extension is going to be guaranteed. We saw the Philadelphia 76ers with Joel Embiid bake incentives um, into the, the contract based on game plays. Uh, games played. I would expect to see something similar with Zion to where he is guaranteed a huge portion of this deal, but that it could be voided if he doesn't meet a games played threshold. I don't know where that's going to land. Uh, the fact that he's played just 85 games through two seasons, uh, three seasons, excuse me, and missed all of last year. Um, it's it's going to make it tough. And given his body type and, and the way that he plays, it's not a shot at him being in shape. It's just someone who is that thick girthy you don't expect to see fly through the air like that and so he's more of this physical anomaly than Joel Embiid and so the will, will there be a difference there or does he just have more leverage because technically he's played in more games over his first three seasons than Joel Embiid did that's how I would expect this to to play out though uh is that he signs a five-year max deal with the Pelicans that is not fully guaranteed and it will become fully guaranteed as he crosses a game's played threshold over the year uh, the final thing news nugget or topical non-question I, I wanted to address is the Draymond Green podcast stuff there seem to be people who are legitimately mad that Draymond is podcasting during the finals as a podcast at all uh, I saw a tweet going around from a Twitter space Twitter spaces where someone was just irate after game three I'm telling Draymond to get off his podcast and lock into to finals mode. I'm here for the jokes because I'm always here for the jokes, but I think Sam Esfandiari from Light Years had like one of just the, the best tweets on this or the single best tweet on this, excuse me, where he said, Michael Jordan was out until 4 a.m. gambling the night before playoff games, finals games. Draymond Green is in his hotel room, sober, just podcasting. Like, this is not a big deal. He's not spending hours upon hours upon hours on his podcast. Jake Fisher of Bleacher Report did have a report that um, there, there, were, there are Celtic staffers, other coaches around the league who listen to it to maybe gain some insight into what he's saying about other teams. I saw some people push back against that, saying, well, th those opposing coaching staffs know everything they already need to know. It still would not surprise me if they were checking out Draymond Green's podcast, if, they, if they're being mandated to by, by the head coach or maybe the front office of the team, which employs them just to see if there's anything on there that they missed or that they should know that he let slip, whatever. I wouldn't say it's a primary form of their research, but it wouldn't, you know, Jake Fisher, one of the most reputable reporters out there right now, he's not making shit up. But this idea that um, Draymond Green is focusing too much on his podcast or he's giving away trade secrets on his podcast. It's just so fucking stupid. Like, come on. I know there's this rampant, um, like issue of oversimplifying everything in the NBA rather than providing actual contest context. Draymond Green was really bad in game three. And that includes what happens on defense. We can go further into that and look at how on offense, he's such a zero when he's not making shots or being hesitant to take them. And then when Boston is just not guarding him at all, they're treating him like a complete non-factor. We can get into whether the Warriors, should they change certain lineups to include Looney in the middle when they're downsizing instead of Draymond Green, 
even if it's for small stretches. I would argue if he's having a game like he he had in game three, where he just, you know, he threw some really bad passes, wasn't especially good at containing the ball or disrupting um, plays as he was in games one and two, specifically game two, it's easier to make a call like that. If you want to go even deeper into just like the, the defensive nuances of where Draymond Green was struggling or where he was beat. Like there are, there's content, there's writing, there's podcasts, the dunker spot, the low post that went into detail on it. There are Twitter accounts that went into detail on it. Like I said, articles that went into detail on it. We can have more in-depth discussions about this without going for the low brow um, reasons. And again, if you want to poke fun at it or joke, that's fine. Uh, I think, look, Draymond said he was talking about basically new media with Chris Haynes, referencing himself, J.J. Redick, uh, and C.J. McCollum when McCollum informed him that he picked the Celtics to win the series. He mentioned Patrick, Patrick Beverly as just a billboard of honesty and someone who's not a hater in this quote-unquote new media. That is, that is fucking wild to me after how over-the-top Patrick Beverly's comments were on uh, I think that was ESPN's first take. Maybe it was Fox Sports' show. I can't even remember at this point. When he was talking about Steph Curry and just some of the other stuff in the NBA at large. Like, go ahead and criticize Draymond Green. Make the jokes if you need to. Uh, the fuck Draymond chance. That's not something I would want my kid to hear, but I'm also not skewing towards Clay Thompson. Think of the children's speech, which was objectively funny because it was following a press conference from Draymond in which he said he played like shit while his son was sitting right next to him. This we don't need to take this stuff so seriously or just go so off the rails that we veer into the senseless. And that's what happened. I don't care that Draymond Green is podcasting ever or during the finals. Good for him. And he was probably right when he said that, you know, people are just angry that their podcast has fewer downloads than his since everyone has a podcast and many, many, many of them are going to be less popular than Draymond Green's. Let's get to an official uh, mailbag question, although this is somewhat topical. Um, it's not somewhat, it's, it's highly topical. This comes from Matt Lyons. Who will the jazz hire as their head coach? I got into this on my monologue in the previous podcast. If you haven't listened to that, check it out. I honestly have no idea per woes. The judge just requested permission to interview Dallas Mavericks assistant, Sean Sweeney. Um, he also, for anyone who cares, interviewed for the, the Charlotte Hornets job at one point. They've also been linked to their own assistant in Alex Jensen, Frank Vogel, Terry Stotts, former coach of the Blazers, Johnny Bryant, head coaching uh, assistant coach with the Knicks. And he also has ties to Donovan Mitchell, which is why he is someone who should probably be taken very seriously in this. Uh, Lamar Skeeter, he's also been on the Jazz staff. Kevin Young, he's an associate head coach for the Phoenix Suns at the moment, used to work for the Sixers. Charles Lee, he's an assistant for the Milwaukee Bucks. Adrian Griffin, well-known assistant at this point for the Toronto Raptors. And Will Hardy, a current Boston Celtics assistant coach. Uh, these other names I'm seeing right now from KSL.com. Chris Quinn, uh, he's a Miami Heat assistant. Joe Mazzola, I actually did not see this name until just this moment, uh, is a current assistant for the Boston Celtics. Also, there are a lot of names being bandied out about there. And unfortunately for Sixers fans, none of them are, are Doc Rivers. I honestly don't know what route they're going to go in. My guess would be that they'll go in the Terry Stotts direction, and that could inform a lot of what we should expect from them in the offseason and moving forward as it pertains to, oh, are they going to look to blow up this core? If you see them go, if you see them go with Johnny Bryant, 
I'm not saying he doesn't deserve it and hasn't uh, been a good enough assistant or an assistant for long enough to not be in the mix for these. But if they go with Johnny Bryan, I think it's pretty clear that Rudy Gobert is going to be gone and they're going to do whatever it takes to, to keep Donovan Mitchell. Um, I don't, if I had to, I, like I said, I think they'll go with someone who's a little bit more established um, and Terry Stotts would just be stabbed in the dark here. And it's not just because he's one of the few names with a track record and someone I know more about. That just seems like the Utah Danny Ainge hire here. However, if they are open to rebuilding or if they're more concerned with sticking with Donovan Mitchell and moving Gobert, just retooling in general, I could see them going outside the box, hiring an assistant, someone with either limited head coach experience or none at all. I will say I will be fairly shocked if this is where Frank Vogel lands after being fired by the Lakers. That's that's as far as I'll go there. It also wouldn't surprise me if we've yet to even hear the name of the person the Jazz hire. But as of right now, I'm just going to say Terry Stotts because I don't think the Jazz are looking to rebuild. I think they want a name in there that they could um, trust. And if Donovan Mitchell is really unnerved and unsettled, the next best thing you could probably do, aside from letting him pick the next head coach or going with someone who's super close with him, would be installing just a reliable veteran in there. Uh, again, I really do have sub-zero feel based on the. I don't. I didn't think as many assistant coach type names were going to be released, uh, knowing that Danny Ainge was spearheading this search. So that's going to be something to monitor for sure. Simon asks if the NBA adds teams in Vegas and Seattle, which team gets moved to the East? That's an interesting question. I think it's fairly certain that it would be Memphis in that scenario would become the 16th team in the Eastern Conference. Um, I could also, you can make the case for New Orleans as well. I know others have mentioned Minnesota. Um, if you're doing some conference le- realignment there, excuse me, uh, I would totally understand uh, going that route. But I, I think it would be Memphis, if not New Orleans. Those would be the two that I would expect. You could even make the case that like, if you want to move both Memphis and, and New Orleans to the east and then kind of shift around the the Western conference a little bit, sending another team in that direction. But yeah, I think it's, if I had to settle on a, on a one team, I think it would be the Memphis Grizzlies. That just seems like uh, the, the, the easiest answer there. I don't even think there are any other possible answers. Like when you look at the actual makeup of the Western conference besides Memphis and new Orleans. And again, if you want to get into Minnesota, like it's not going to be an LA team. It can't be a Texas team. Portland's too far West. Um, Same thing with Oklahoma city. So yeah, uh, it, it would be the, the Memphis Grizzlies for me. If you wanted to go like super conference realignment, uh, would you consider like moving both Memphis and new Orleans to the Eastern conference? And then, you know, there's not even a good East team to just punt to the West there. Like it does, there's nothing even close. Like you, even Toronto would be dumb um, just because of how Northeastern they are. What you could do is get rid of conferences, which I would be in all, all favor for. Let's just have the, the best teams making the playoffs. Maybe that makes the play-in tournament a little bit messier. I honestly don't care. You have to maybe shape-shift the way that you're going about your, your schedules, but whatever. Keep conferences, and let's just get, get rid of divisions at this point, please. Something along those lines. Tangent that we don't need to get into. We've gotten into it on previous episodes. Sammy asks, how often does the team with the best regular season defensive rating end up winning a championship? They say defense wins championships. I'm just going to say all the time, but that's actually not true. So I went back through the three-point era and looked at the teams that won the championship while placing first in defensive rating. Um, During this span in the three-point era, we have had 42 champions so far. 
and only seven have ranked first in defensive rating. Going in order of the most recent to the furthest away, we have the 2015 Golden State Warriors, 2008 Boston Celtics, 2005 San Antonio Spurs, 2000 Los Angeles Lakers, 1999 San Antonio Spurs, 1996 Chicago Bulls, and the 1986 Houston Rockets. Uh, I think what's a better barometer for championship equity is where you rank in both offensive and defensive efficiency. This has been studied and said ad nauseum in the past, but ranking in the top 10 of both points allowed per possession and points scored per possession are the, the greatest harbingers of, uh, of your likelihood to win a title. So um, that, this season, though, obviously, we could come to a point where Golden State, this using basketball reference, the numbers can be different when you're using cleaning the glass. Basketball reference I just used because it was easier to go that far back. Golden State had the top regular season defensive rating. And so could they become the, the eighth team um, to rank first in defense and win a title during the three-point error era? Well, we will have to see. If you're listening to this after game four, taking place in front of night, you will you will have a better hold of whether they have a legitimate chance of, of doing that. But one of the top two defensive teams are going to win a title because Boston was second in points allowed per possession this past season. That's a great question though. Uh, S ask has a bunch of questions. Let's go through the first one. What happens with Zach Levine's free agency? I just expect him to resign with the Chicago bulls. Maybe it's a four year max. Uh, as we've mentioned, just someone with his age, he could say that he would prefer to get to free agency quicker. So maybe it's four years with a player option on that fourth year, um, which is why the fifth year that the Bulls can offer him doesn't matter. If the Bulls go at him with a full five-year max offer, though, I would expect him to sign it. He's just had injury issues pop up um, in the past with with his like more serious injuries with his knee. And then even now, there are just these... They're not random or necessarily isolated incidents, but his body's just been banged up um, this past season. And so that's something that I think if you're him, you want to secure your, your long-term future. There's also just sort of a dearth of teams with cap space this summer. If we've, we've mentioned ad nauseum, does he want to leave to go play for the Pistons? It'd be super interesting to see Memphis clear more, a little bit more cap space than they're slated to have and get him. That doesn't seem like something they would do just it's out of character. The Spurs would be interesting. Um, are they going to be that aggressive to get him though? And, you know, it just, Orlando, I don't really see Levine wanting to play there. Portland, they've been mentioned for Levine. Uh, I just, I still with Portland, I don't necessarily know why he would want to go there. I don't think it's a much better situation than he has in Chicago, even though I think the world of Damian Lillard, just with Portland, it would be weird to go. And I said this before, go from Norman Powell and CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard to just Anthony Simons and Zach Levine and Damian Lillard. I, I don't know that you're materially better with the latter trio and you would definitely need to hit on the margins and flesh out the rest of your wing rotation and, and even big man rotation uh, in the image of that. If I had to pick a team that Zach Levine would be on, if it wasn't Chicago, damn, I, I want to say with the Miami heat, like I could just see a scenario where he wants to go to Miami they have enough injury risks on the table with Kyle Lowry, Jimmy Butler, even Bam Adebayo a little bit. But if they just went the Tyler Hero and all the picks route, maybe it requires um, – you have Duncan Robinson in there as well. Maybe this requires them 
seeking out, sorry, I'm operating on three hours of sleep here. Maybe it requires them sussing out a third team to make it like this weird mega deal because Chicago still wants to compete. I'm just going to say Miami. I would prefer to see him in like a, a San Antonio would be interesting or Memphis or even the Knicks. And that's just not, you know, I just feel like him on the Knicks, if they're able to keep RJ Barrett, like you really start to have something there. Uh, I fully expect him to return to the Chicago Bulls, though. Uh, S also asked, does Sacramento and Portland ultimately keep their pick? Sacramento has number four. The Blazers have number seven. There's been so much smoke about the Blazers trading number seven. It almost makes you think that they won't trade number seven. Um, I think they're far more likely to move their pick, and not just because it's lower. If they're serious about retooling, rebuilding, whatever you want to call it around Damian Lillard, they almost have to move this pick. It is their best tool with which to improve the roster. Um, are we talking about them giving it up flat out for a player based on who's been mentioned as available? Unless you're talking about getting OG on Anobi, um, who, by the way, Matt Moore of the action network reported that Portland, San Antonio and Denver are all teams who have known registered interest in OG Anobi. I still don't think he's moved unless the Raptors are making their own blockbuster buy. Uh, Denver super intriguing for him. I just, I find it hard to figure out how the Nuggets would build a package. I think you'd have to throw Bones Highland distant first and then hope that they're really interested in Aaron Gordon. Um, but looking at your defense, you probably want to have both Aaron Gordon and OG Ananobi in there, even if you don't view either of them as both bankable shooters. So you would then need, yes, Bones Highland, ton of value. I think one of the 10 most valuable trade assets uh, heading into the offseason, if we're being honest, you then need uh, them to really like Michael Porter Jr. in that contract, which could wind up being disastrous. So just food for thought there. If you can get OG Ananobi straight up with the seventh pick, I think he's actually worth more than that. But if that's the package you're going after, I'm fine. If it's for Jeremy Grant, no, just he's, he's headed towards free agency. You need to be you know, more prudent with your, with your top asset here. I could see the Blazers in a situation where they trade down and they're getting a pick that can still be used to anchor a Jeremy Grant trade that's lower than seven. I think one that's become, I've mentioned a bunch, I've written about a bunch. I think one that's become popular is probably just the Knicks sitting there at number 11. Can you get, you know, trade number 11 for two, uh, excuse me, number seven for two of number 11 having to be one, but then also the Mavs 2023 first round pick. They have Obi Toppin, they have Alec Burks, Quentin Grimes, Deuce McBride, even Cam Reddish. Um, if you can get number 11 plus then, two of those assets, maybe even one, depending on how much you value it. Can you then turn around and flip number 11 as the primary asset for Jeremy Grant while still keeping the other players or, or picks that you're getting back in that deal for the Kings. It's tough. They are operating with a sense of urgency. It's implied by the fact that they traded a 22 year old stud in Tyrese Halliburton with two years left on his rookie scale for an older but still youngish Domas Sabonis, who's now extension eligible, makes more money to begin with and just puts you on the, the win-now track, even if it doesn't actually put you on the win-now track. I don't know if the Kings are appreciably better with him and Fox over a, over a Halliburton-Fox pairing. I get that it clarifies a little bit of their backcourt rotation if you viewed Davion Mitchell as this long-term player moving forward. I just don't think that was a decision the Kings ever had to make. And so... Knowing that, I could see them just holding on to number four, taking Shane Sharp or even Jaden Ivey and figuring out the rest later. It's not like Fox and Sabonis are super old. Sabonis just turned 26 in May. Fox doesn't turn 25 until December. You can go the more gradual route with this redirect, whatever you want to call it in, in Sacramento. 
I don't know what player becomes available that's worth just giving up the number four pick without getting another first round pick in this year's draft in return. So maybe it's an instance where they look at moving down because there's a team that, you know, is it, is it the Knicks? Is it the wizards um, that really wants to move up to get Jaden Ivy? Let's say uh, if they want to take Jaden sharp, just, just take Jaden sharp, like um, beef up, shore up your wing rotation, make that sort of dice roll on him. But if you are really married to the idea of making noise in the West next season, I don't know that you can. There are there are avenues. What, what would Indy give up to to move up all the way to to number four? What it's just the two spot jump. But again, you might be able to recoup a veteran or another first round pick there. Um, there are I wouldn't say there are a shortage of teams that need point guards. I think when you're looking specifically at how the the draft order shakes out, that you might be limited in. Uh, what you're able to get. I think because Indy and Detroit might be the two teams that are most interesting when it comes to um, being higher up, having value and needing a point guard. And they're only one and two picks away. So what are they really giving you? The Blazers have Dame and they intend to keep him. They're at seven. New Orleans is at eight. Having CJ McCollum, Brandon Ingram and a healthy Zion Williamson, plus Devontae Graham, even Jose Alvarado, like that limits your need for a primary playmaker. I mentioned the Wizards at... Number 10, they could use someone next to Bradley Beal. I mentioned the Knicks. I know they have Emmanuel Quickly, Derek Rose, Kemba Walker, for anyone who still cares about, about that. No one that I just mentioned, including a Julius Randle, who has served as their primary playmaker for points, is good enough for them to draft for, for need. If you can move up and get what you think is the best player available and a future star, you should go for it. OKC at 12, they have Josh Giddy and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I'm not a big draft for need guy, but if, if you have Jaden Ivey and then those two, you're going to have to answer some awkward questions pretty soon. Charlotte already has LaMelo ball. They have 13 and 15, the Cavs, they don't, they don't need Jaden Ivy. So like what would Houston give you uh, there? You're not going to get number three when you're number four. So like we've already moved there at 17. That's like the next team that I could envision aside from Detroit or Indiana, really wanting a, a higher end point guard, giving up a ton of equity. What are you getting for that? Is it like they have Christian Wood and Jason Tate and Eric Gordon um, and then future picks plus number 17. I don't really know, you know, Christian Wood and Domas Sabonis. I think Sabonis's defensive reputation has been inflated by the fact he played with Miles Turner. It will be deflated if he starts playing alongside Christian Wood. So that is training down is something they could look at. Otherwise, unless it's just this patented star that becomes available, who makes so much sense for the roster. Um, and I think it would be a name we've yet to hear that could hit. It's not a Bradley Beal wants to stay in Washington, but people still talk about him. Zach Levine did with Chicago. Those aren't the names we're talking about here. It'd have to be like Pascal Siakam all of a sudden becomes available from Toronto, which I do not expect. Would I give up number four is the question I posed to myself for OG Ananobi. I think I would. I'm not going to lie. It'd be great if you get Gary Trent Jr. as part of that as well. And maybe you're sending out Rashawn Holmes and some other stuff. But if it's just the framework is OG for number four, I'm not doing it if I'm the Raptors. Just I don't necessarily love the idea of Jaden Ivey there. Maybe, maybe it would be fine. Um, but if they are looking to say, oh, we have Scotty Barnes, we have Pascal Siakam, we have Fred Van Fleet, let's get number four. Maybe it's a three-team trade where they're getting a different type of player. For the Kings, certainly. I, I would absolutely trade number four for OG Ananobi. Uh, final question from that we'll get to from S is, will Scotty Barnes have an all-star season next year? I'm just going to say no. It's really tough for sophomores to get to that level. Um, I think we would still have to see pretty major strides from him on the offensive end as good as he was will Toronto saddle him with more playmaking we know that he has that nice sort of 
mid-range baby interior touch in addition to playing with some thrust when he's around the basket. And we, we saw him hit, go through stretches where he was hitting standstill threes. Um, I think what needs to happen with him on offense is everything improving while him making decisions at a faster pace. Not that he was a particularly slow player, but when you're looking at what he would do operating off the dribble when the half court was set, he did feel a touch slower at points, um, even with the directionality of his, his downhill attacks or you know, going east-west trying to elude players. He just felt a touch slower than like a Pascal Siakam. If you ask me to peg it at a percentage chance, I don't even I don't even feel comfortable giving one. It's probably higher than the credit I would give. Uh, the Eastern Conference is is deep with forwards and wings when they're when they're fully healthy. So that could make it difficult for him. Um, also, what will be prohibitive is just the fact that you will have two people in front of you in the offensive pecking order in Fred Van Fleet and Pascal Siakam if the roster stays the same. Um, I think he's going to need to put up like real, you know, OG Ananobi 2020-2021 type scoring numbers just to catch the attention of the voters, fans, and, and media members alike. Uh, I could see him becoming just sort of a defensive monster, someone we're mentioning in the all-defensive discussion uh, next season. And again, it would not shock me. I just wouldn't bet on it. EG has apparently come to the right podcast. He asked, why does no one care Isaiah Hartenstein had a higher PER shooting percentage and assist percentage than James Harden while Hartenstein was in a bench role um, when the only other players to do that in NBA history are Curry, KD, and Jokic? I didn't even know that that was a thing, so I apologize for for not caring for that. I do think there's something to Hartenstein being underrated. The fact he had a fight for a roster spot in LA in the first place still wild to me. Um, I look at these numbers; they're more specific, but I think they're a snapshot of his value. He was coming off the bench for LA. His role was expanded as the season went on. Just as a, a situational passer on the move, um, someone who was able to protect the rim for them, he had some range to his game. I think he's capable of expanding his three-point touch, even if his release isn't the quickest. But numbers that stand out to me: opponent shot forty-seven point five percent against Isaiah Hartenstein at the rim last season. That's the best mark allowed by 163 players to challenge at least 150 shot attempts at the rim. Hartenstein's 19.3 assist rate ranked sixth among all centers who averaged 15 or more minutes per game last season. That's a big friggin' deal. While he isn't what you'd term an explosive lob threat, he can definitely finish tough catch and shoot lay-ins through contact and, and even above the rim. They're just not going to be these thundering dunks. I'm more impressed by, um, his, his touch just beyond the point blank range. He downed 14 of his 33 point attempts. That's a 46.7% clip and found nylon on almost 59% of his floaters. He was 55 of 93 on floaters. Non-star centers are generally considered replaceable and seldom generate a ton of fanfare. This is someone who would not shock me to see that he's graduated from mini mid-level exception territory to full mid-level exception territory. And if it's a shorter deal, is there a team that's willing to offer him more that has cap space and maybe it's just two years and they've inflated it or, or it's three years or something. Uh, he has been that good. And I think he's a starting center in the NBA and definitely one of the most underrated players from this past season, one of the most underrated free agents heading into this summer. Next question comes from Shalimar, the God. If Clay Thompson wasn't untouchable, what team would benefit most from a Clay Thompson trade? I try to give these questions, and if you saw the doc that I have lined up right in front of me, I do a ton of research for these. Um, this was one I struggled with, maybe because I just can't ever envision the Warriors moving him. The team that springs to mind for me would be Cleveland. Just, they need shooting. They could use a little bit more shot creation, but but they just need, like, 
sweet shooting wings. And you think about what Clay Thompson does. He has been a liability at points on defense. Now the Cavs made Larry Markin and look good on defense this year. I think he did a better job staying in front of guys um, relative to his matchups than some people might believe. I know the Cavs were able to structure and play around with his matchups in a unique way because they have both Mobley and Allen alongside him. It's, it only gets easier with Clay Thompson. I'm not saying replaces Larry Markin at the three, but if you're playing him, while putting someone else at the two, it could be a Colin Sexton. It could be a Karis LeVert with Darius Garland at the one. It could also be Isaac Okoro and Clay as sort of your swingman and perimeter guy. Um, we also talk about what you would give up to get him, which I'm assuming probably consists of if we were doing a trade number 14 is Isaac Okoro. I don't even know if teams would actually give up that much for Clay Thompson. Let's throw that package aside. I look at what Cleveland needs most, and he feels like a great fit, not the least of because he he doesn't torpedo your defense still. If you have enough competent defenders around you, um, it might be really important for them to also keep Isaac Okoro just because of how you could uh, you know shape shift your defensive matchups there. With that said, Evan Mobley is basically a do it all guy on defense, and he gives you that flexibility anyway. I could see Toronto as an interesting fit. They need shooting. They also need some half court creation. They have more than enough defensive talent to handle. Uh, reduced version of clay thompson at that end and look i want to point this out thompson was already on the defense of the climb before his injuries and he's coming back from an achilles and an acl injury where for each of those it kind of feels like you punt on your your first season back you're just not the same player kevin Durant was an anomaly of course um but defensively it feels like you're not the same player for at least a year that you're you're a shell of your former self for at least a year. And so I'm not saying we need to bake two years into his recovery timeline, but let's try and keep what we're seeing now this past half season that he played basically in perspective, he could be a lot better next year. So Cleveland or Toronto spring to mind for me, I tried to figure out a Western conference team that would make a ton of sense. I didn't get there. I mean, the Lakers just need talent. So you could obviously throw him right there. Uh, I, I think the Grizzlies, if it's not going to be the Warriors, would be my next team to pick just another team that could definitely use some half court shooting and the idea of clay Thompson pinballing around, and then they're going to have the defenders to really make his job simple. So the three teams I'm settling on is the best non warriors clay Thompson's fit fits. And this would be, this is infinitely stupid because we know it's never going to happen. It is Cleveland, Toronto, and Memphis. If I had to pick a fourth, I'm or Orlando. Look, they have the number one pick. Jonathan Isaac might be healthy. They have Markel Fultz. Uh, we have a question about Markel Fultz in our uh, Discord portion of this mailbag. So the next mailbag we release next week sometime, we'll, we'll have that. Um, they they need shooting, and someone like Clay Thompson would really open up things for Jalen Suggs and, and Markel Fultz and whether they wind up with Javari, Javari Smith Jr., Chet Holgram, or Paolo Bancaro. And people have mentioned that we don't talk enough about teams like the, the Magic going for these win-now plays. It's because the Magic aren't winning now. I want to make that clear. And we're, I'm not trying to dump all over the Magic I know they get less coverage than a lot of other teams, probably including on this podcast because they're out of headlines so often. We try to do a thorough job as possible, though, of of covering the league. I think we do awesome at it, if I can be selfish and not so humble for a minute. So I'm going to throw Orlando into that mix. Just if they were looking to win now based off what that roster kind of needs and and you believe you have the nice defensive base with, maybe you're drafting Chet Holmgren and you have Wendell Carter Jr. already. You know you have Jonathan Isaac. Um and faults as well. Like that's something that you could look at depending on the asking price. Again, doesn't matter, but just thinking about Clay Thompson fits there. Jake G asks, is this the perfect trade? Who says no? In my mind, the Hornets are getting a first round pick as well. 
Jake, I love you and all your questions. I want to know why the Hornets would be getting a first round pick and Harrison Barnes and Matisse Thibel for giving up Gordon Hayward. But the deal is Philly gets Gordon Hayward, Rashawn Holmes, Justin Holiday. Charlotte gets Harrison Barnes, Matisse Thibel on a first round pick. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it's not the Kings number four pick. And then the Kings get James Harden. Uh, this is, I'm sorry to tell you, not the, the perfect trade. I get that maybe you think James Harden sucks now. I was talking about this in the Discord where I think it's more likely he enters the MVP discussion next season than this drop-off continues just because I can't envision such this steep, sudden drop-off from him. Based on his comments during the exit interviews, I feel like this is the off-season where he'll take his recovery, his diet, nutrition, fitness more seriously than he has the past two or three off-seasons or maybe his entire career. I just don't think he's ever shown that commitment to staying in a certain type of shape, even though he's been fantastically durable and in shape. Um, that other players have, and he's into his thirties. Now that's something that would probably need to change. It's just funny me sitting in a chair right now recording this. And I'm saying an NBA player needs to get into shape. Uh, the other issue here is just that James Harden has control over where he's going. He's not going to the Kings. If he has no other offers on the market and he's forced to pick up his player option, then yes, the Kings could definitely go that route. Um, I don't even, if I'm the Kings, like I, yeah, I'd roll the dice on James Harden. If it's Barnes, Holmes and holiday, and you're not giving up like any major first round equity. So for them, I'd do it. I just in a heartbeat. If from Charlotte, uh, Philly to me is getting screwed. They would be the team that needs to get picks here. Hayward's contract to me is still net negative. Even if it's technically shorter than the next deal that James Harden would sign your highest end outcome with Gordon Hayward is significantly lower than your highest end outcome with with James Harden. So I would, I do not think this is the perfect trade. I'm, I apologize, JG. It would be interesting if James Harden does enter the, the trade discourse this season after signing his, his next contract, or maybe he's just opting in and playing on an expiring contract. I'm bracing myself for anything just because he was, you know, pretty bad when he was, he wasn't pretty bad, but he was pretty uninspiring this past season. I will say with Harden, even when he's like operating at this, like half capacity, his on-ball gravity is incredible. I don't think you're ever going to get him to move him off the ball, and he could still definitely hit jumpers off the catch. But when he's on the ball, teams, really good defenses still pay a ton of attention to him. That opens up things for everybody else, and he main, he remains one of the league's best passers. So I don't want to dismiss that either. Final two questions here, both of which will come from Raul Clement. Uh, he first asked, Jeremy Grant for Julius Randle and draft compensation. Detroit seems to have... Plenty of cap space and time to take on bad money. Grant isn't the star that the Knicks want, but he seems a little more plug and play than Randall. I think the Pistons need to be following OKC's lead by using their cap space to take on bad contracts or picks. I do not hate that idea for Detroit. I think the issue is, in, in a nutshell, of taking on contracts or picks. Julius Randall has four years left on his deal. His extension, uh, his max, what was a max extension at the time, uh, is only kicking in to start next season. And so that's tough to swallow. What is the draft compensation that's making it worth it? And then you still have to reconcile the fact that he's there. And are you going to play him when he's such a huge cap number uh, and you're rebuilding? And if you're not, you're just going to have this dead cap number or a player. Is he, is he with your team? Not with your team. Are you confident that he could re you could reroute him at some point? I, I honestly don't know, but when he's, you know, owed four years and, $119 million, I believe, was the, the final number. I haven't talked about his actual contract in, in quite some time. Uh, four years, $117 million is what it was. 
uh, has a player option the final year for 32.4. He's definitely exercising that as of now. You would need to be confident in his ability to help your team or at least reboot his value, or the Knicks need to be offering you a crap ton of compensation. And if, if I'm being honest, I think we're talking about number 11 at minimum to get this type of contract off your books. Uh, maybe you're arguing that Julius Randle could actually help a team that's looking to win now. That would become a third team scenario then. Uh, Grant on the Knicks is fine, but he's also a good player. While he's headed towards free agency, you have to account for the value you're giving up with him. Would they trade Jeremy Grant for the number 11 pick straight up? My guess would be no. And so are, are you willing to go Cam Reddish, Obi Toppin, and 11, like pairing that with Julius Randle to get Jeremy Grant, where that opens your books and you get, as Rowell mentioned, he's he's more plug and play, um, even though he wants a bigger role. Julius Randle, part of this is on the Knicks. They need to use him as the screener more, and even like as a spot-up shooter more. He's at least shown... In the past, even briefly, that he can hit threes. So I, I don't hate the idea of this for Detroit. I just would question whether the Knicks can and should give up a net enough draft equity to make it happen. I think they are going to think that they can reboot his value themselves. He is one year removed from making second team All-NBA. I just think he demands um, too much centrality within the offense to ever be the player that um, is going to be best suited for this. I think his role uh, needs to be rejiggered to just include more complementary usage. Like I said, being used to the screener more, maybe in lineups where he's actually the five, um, the defensive returns be, be damned there. Uh, if look, if the Pistons are interested, you should absolutely explore it as a niche with any other team that's going to have cap space. But if you're also getting back a player who's good, I could see this being number 11 plus OB top in would be the minimum. I could see Detroit doing it, doing it for. And again, the length of uh, the, the Randall extension, having those full four years, I think that makes it, more difficult. Uh, the other trade Rebel proposed DeAndre Ayton for John Collins. I don't have a clear sense of Ayton's value. I want to say he's seen as more valuable than Collins, but maybe if you if you have to pay him the max, however, uh, excuse me, over would he rank you? Oh, I actually have two questions after this. Now that I'm now that I'm seeing this, anyway. Um, and Collins would give. However, I think he could help Atlanta's defense a lot, and Collins would give Phoenix some more small ball versatility. Plus, it seems like they don't want to pay Ayton anyway. Is their path to getting? Collins and Bogdanovich, if they throw in someone else, maybe Cam Johnson or someone, should the Suns even want to do that? Should the Hawks? I don't think the Hawks should want to do that because I wouldn't view DeAndre Ayton as a defensive upgrade over Clint Capella. They do different things, uh, but Clint Capella is going to be substantially cheaper if DeAndre Ayton gets the max. I do like the idea of John Collins at Phoenix. If you trust your defense overall, uh, are they willing to pay him even around $25 million a year when it seems like they don't want to pay bigs anything near max money? Maybe it's different just because he stretches the floor and he's just proved inf infinitely scalable. That type of return would be interesting for them. You need to have another team that's taking on Capella, and I think Atlanta would still need to get more there. Base year compensation makes this really difficult as well because Aiton would count as only like 15 point something million in outgoing salary should he sign the max. I don't love the idea for Atlanta, though. Um, I do think that Phoenix can get into some interesting trade packages where if John Collins is available, maybe this is a situation where there is a third team involved. And maybe that third team is Detroit where Jeremy Grant's the one going to Atlanta. And then you're sending um, something to Detroit to help it make worth their while. Is DeAndre Ayton involved in that? And then um, Atlanta sending you uh, John Collins by virtue of that framework. I don't hate the idea of John Collins and Phoenix. I just, that would be a fairly significant defensive drop-off going from Aiton to Collins there. That being said, you can play Collins at the four. Um, you can't do that with Aiton, despite what Aiton might say. And if you keep JaVale McGee, maybe bring back Bismack Biombo, maybe you sign another center that you're you're really high on, you're able to cobble together a 
a good defense in that regard. So I like the thought of just as an off the beat sort of consideration of John Collins and Phoenix. I think people have been, when you're not talking about an actual center, they're more inclined to go the, the Jeremy Grant route. Um, or the, when they're talking about a big, it's been a Jakob Pertle because of his defense. I don't hate the idea of leaning into offense. Uh, at this point, John Collins gives you more actual shot creation than DeAndre Ayton. There's more post-up work to plumb with him, but he has more of a face-up floor game, I think, than Ayton does. And just his range, extending beyond the three-point line, hit 36.6% of his catch-and-shoot threes last year. Um, and I, 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 that number to me, I would expect to, to go up. He would definitely be more of an, an offensive asset. Now we're at our final mailbag question from longtime listener, friend of the podcast, Miroslav Shook. Rank your top five guys to start your franchise with right now in the case of a fantasy draft. Oof, I didn't see this one, so I'm doing this off the cuff. I'm going to go with Luka Doncic. I'm going to go with Jason Tatum. After that, I have to like, I have to get past these so many old heads or older heads, excuse me, or are springing to mind here. I'm going to say. Evan Mobley, Scotty Barnes, and Cade Cunningham. Did I just pick? I really just went that route. I'm gonna Cade Cunningham, definitely him. Luka Doncic, Jason Tatum. Uh, if I, I'm not, I wouldn't use any of the the like say, oh, Orlando's number one pick. Luka Doncic, Tatum, and Cade Cunningham for sure. I'm gonna throw Scotty Barnes in there as well. Do I want Mobley there? What do I think Mobley's going to become on the offensive end? I'm sure people are irate right now that I'm, I'm thinking in that I'm thinking in these these terms. Uh, so yeah, those four. I don't know who my fifth is. I don't want to settle on somebody. I think it might be Evan Mobley. I could see the case for you thinking that it maybe it needs to be someone along the lines of a Devin Booker. Um, just given his youth and all he does on offense. Zion Williamson, if he was healthy, could be in the mix. I think Joel Embiid's officially like too old for this. You know what? Fuck it. Giannis. It's still Giannis. It's Giannis, Tatum, Doncic, Barnes, and Cade Cunningham. That's what I'm going with. Come at me if you're angry. I I mean no malice. And please recognize I did this off the, the top of my head. This was great. Thank you, everyone who made it this far. And for listening, um, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you are getting your podcasts. Um, Until next time, I leave you all with a shout-out to the one, the only, and someone who's not gotten a shout-out for this in quite some time. Definitely makes my list, now that I'm thinking about it, of the top five guys to start my franchise with right now in the case of a fantasy draft, Frank Nielakina.